Welcome back to the Public Lands Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Peddlety. As you know from listening to past episodes, our mainstay here at the podcast has been interviewed with guest stewards, such as leaders of friends of groups, rangers, environmental scientists, artists, and musicians who take care of and celebrate our public lands and waters. Today is a bit different. I traveled to Malak's Cathio State Park to attend the park's archaeology days. There we were able to learn about one of the most important forms of public land stewardship, the preservation and exploration of past lifeways, knowledge that remains relevant and can help inform how we choose to live with our relatives on the land, whether they have two, four, or more legs, or less, as well as our friends that swim in the lakes, rivers, and oceans. For the Dakota and Ojibwe, who have lived here for millennia, all living creatures and the land, sky, and water themselves are our relatives. And upon experiencing an event like this one at Mille Lacs Cathio, I'm reminded to give thanks to the people whose unceded territory I tread and who belong to places from where this podcast emanates. This podcast has not done enough to connect the concept of public lands and the fact that most of us are visitors to these amazing places. And again, those of us who produce the podcast give thanks to the people who were here first, have been here the longest, and on whose unceded territory we live, learn, and prosper as guests. After arriving at the Interpretive Center deep in the heart of Malak's Cathio State Park on a beautiful September Saturday, I made my way to a set of tables and booths filled with educational displays. It was a beehive of activities, so I'd like to start by capturing a sense of that. Starting in the corner of the encampment with Dan Went. Let's listen for a few minutes as Dan, a master flint napper, responds to questions from visitors somehow managing to go into great detail while fashioning elaborate points and tools from stones laying across his lap. A novice would break the point in half under the best of conditions, but Dan continued to hone beautiful, sharp points while answering questions from all sides. Hey, hey that's, that's kind of a nifty little thing to put stuff into. Well, an archaeologist can tell you if a human modified it, it can't tell you if a human thought it was cool or useful just right. like it is. Yeah. <laughs> this is knife over flint from North Dakota. It's a solidified lignite coal. And Native Americans really liked this material. They traded it. Um, uh, 20% of the, of the stone tools that are found west of the Mississippi River are this material, and it's from 600 miles away. Um, if you're living in Minnesota, you didn't have uh, a lot of good choices for making stone tools. So it was good to know your neighbors. Something that was carried by All of these uh, kinds of stone are stones that were used for making stone tools in Minnesota. Um, some are from in Minnesota, some are from outside. If you were living on a site right here in the park, the things that you'd have available to you 
Um, this foliated quartz is available at Little Falls, about 20 miles away on the Mississippi River. And it's probably the predominant material that's used in this area. The glaciers brought in material from Manitoba, like Swan River Chert, the one, the one three in from the end. And it brought, the glaciers brought in Tongue River Silica from um, like northeastern North Dakota. But if you look at those three frames, those three frames are the smallest tools on the table. So these are all things that I made. And I was only able to make very small pieces. They're either tough or cracked or um, difficult to make a tool out of. Knife over flint, the thing that I'm working right now, comes from North Dakota. And if you get a good piece, uh, um, you can pretty much impose your will on it to make what you want to make. And um, I had a lot better outcomes with Knife River Flint than I had with those local stones. And I think that's why material was being traded into Minnesota, to compensate for the poor stone in this area. Uh, another stone that was traded in, Burlington Shirt, is from the area around St. Louis, Missouri. And there was a point that was found in this park um, on the Wilford site that's Burlington shirt and it's a point style I mean, that's from the St. Louis area. Oh, okay. So they probably thank brought it in as a finished yeah, tool. It's a softer stone. It's very easy to work. It's very homogeneous. It occurs in big pieces. Um, so again, uh, it's kind of a wonderful stone for a flint napper because you can do what you want with it. Um, it, it isn't very sharp and it doesn't hold an edge very well. Uh, Knife River Flint uh, holds an edge really well. It's a really durable, sharp tool. Um, so different stones have different characteristics and maybe different uses. After learning about flint napping, I wandered over to another booth to learn about SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Office. Mike Coop was on hand to tell me about their work as well as their ongoing efforts to gather information from the public and respond to community preservation needs. A new statewide preservation plan, and this is kind of a new outreach initiative on our part to try to get more input from the public. Sure. So we have a survey that people can take online. Um, we wanted to have a, a question that they could respond to. Oh, you know, sure. For folks, and then for a more fun kind of an event or part of this. They can vote on a mascot. <laughs> That's great. So choose either, you know, Batty Belfry, <laughs> the Restoration Raccoon, or Preservation Porcupine. Mike elaborated on their work at public events like Archaeology Days and described a survey that is part of SHPO's efforts to learn more about what the public and the communities they serve need and foresee in the future, including challenges related to changing social and physical climates. The answers that we get and the trends that we see or mm -hmm. that we get feedback about, that might uh, inform some of the decisions that we you know, choose to go on or roads that we choose to take for preservation going forward. So, for instance, um, you know, maybe we find out <clears throat> that, to you know, refer to the question here, that a lot of people think that you know, the, um, the change in climate is going to have a big impact on historic mm -hmm 
preservation in general. Sure. What are we going to do about it? You know, what yeah. are some initiatives we can take? Not sure yet, but yeah. that's the kind of information that's helpful to get. After chatting a bit more with Mike, I moved on to meet Travis Zimmerman, site manager for the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, a position that he has held since 2008. Travis was informing visitors to Cathio State Park's Archaeology Days about the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, wild ricing, and historical as well as contemporary lifeways in the area, as well as deep connections between the two. Travis began by making a connection to a diorama at the center of the museum where people can learn about how life changed and changes over the course of the seasons in the region. He emphasized wild rice harvesting and cooking, an activity which takes place this time of year. In that diorama, we talk about seasonal living, and, and in the fall, we talk about wild ricing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of the part here that's connected to Archaeology Day at the Cathio State Park because of the evidence that they have here of uh, ricing storage pits and ricing areas and things like that, that not only the Dakota, but also that the Ojibwe used here. So, um, you know, so that's kind of part of the display here that I set up is I show uh, traditionally how they would... Uh, uh, talk about how they would harvest the rice, but also how they would process it from the parching to the threshing to the winnowing. I bring out some wild rice to show people what it looks like, you know, mm-hmm. coming off the plant. I talk mm-hmm. about, you know, harvesting, knocking the rice, that sort of thing. We have some pamphlets here um, that give some more information on wild rice. and So it's just a neat connection to make. And we're always, uh, we partner quite a bit with Cathio State Park. They come up and mm-hmm. do some programs for us. Uh, we just did a rice camp for students here uh, last week, and they came up and brought some canoes up and brought kids out in the bay uh, um, for canoe rides. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it's always nice to get out here, and you always meet really interesting folks and yeah. people that are really interested in, in not just archaeology, but in history as a whole of this area. So yeah. it's always a learning experience for me. I told Travis about a memorable experience I had at the Mille Lacs Indian Museum with my nieces. And then Travis provided a brief update of current and upcoming visits, making me hope that I or one of our reporters could get a chance to visit the museum soon. One of the things that I've been really trying to do is bring in traveling exhibits to the, uh, to the museum. And so a traveling exhibit that we have uh, there now is called the We Are Water exhibit. And it's part of the Minnesota Humanities Center. It's a traveling exhibit. And it just talks about, you know, um, communities' relationships to water, the importance of clean water, not just for drinking, but for natural resources. And so it's been really neat to bring this exhibit up because part of bringing the exhibit to the museum has also been to reach out um, and develop partnerships with uh, different folks. And so Cathio State Park has been a partnership. Um, We've done a partner with... um, uh, the Mille Lacs Band, mm-hmm. uh, Department of Natural Resources, mm-hmm. uh, also with uh, Mille Lacs Watershed Group, you know, sure. that goes out and kind of talks to landowners about how they can, you know, um, uh, be responsible kind of stewards mm-hmm. of, of, you know, shoreline and stuff. So, um, you know, that's definitely been a good, good partnership for us. And so that's one of the things we've been trying to do is just bring in new exhibits. Um, we have a new exhibit there this year, too, celebrating the uh, 100th anniversary of the Jingle Dress, which is a powwow style of, of uh, dance. And uh, that came to the Mille Lacs community uh, 100 years ago. So we were able to create an exhibit commemorating that. So, yeah, it's 
it's always interesting and nice when um, a historic site like the Malax Indian Museum uh, tells the history of a living community, you know, yeah. so you always kind of got to think about how do you keep updating that, how do you mm-hmm. keep it fresh, and then how do you commemorate significant events uh, to that community. Travis discussed the relevance of traditional knowledge of the nations and communities that have lived on the land the longest and noted how that knowledge can help us all make the changes we need to make now in dealing with environmental crises like climate change. And, you know, um, a big voice in that has been American Indian people and indigenous Mm -hmm. communities because a lot of times they're the ones most affected, you know, by those, you know, Mm -hmm. climate change and the issues that come about from climate change. And so... Um, there's a lot to be learned from traditional knowledge and, and you know, um, just uh, the relationships that we have with land and water. Perhaps the star of the show at Archaeology Days is the active test pit being dug at a site near the Interpretive Center at Malax Cafeo State Park. That site and all the many others around it serve as a reminder that not so long ago, indigenous residents of this village called Cafeo their home. Talking to Travis was a good reminder that the cultural heart of the region remains the Malax band of Ojibwe. A crowd gathered around Dave Mather as he used his trowel to uncover artifacts that were last touched hundreds of years ago. As Dave dug, Jim Cummings described an artifact that indicates the locals had a brilliant method for making and using giant cooking pots. Leroy Guncher stood nearby, a retired archaeologist who provides much of the historical memory for the crew. Listen as Jim presents a story about their ongoing work at the test pit, park, and the village site that he has undoubtedly told many times that same day. Yet as a master interpreter, he is able to perform it each time as if it is his first. And as you'll hear from some of the questions, his audience was transfixed as well. What does their relationship to other artifacts tell us about the human activity that happened here? That's what it's all about. So... We excavated, and in the top five centimeters, now that's not very deep, right? We get down from the surface to five centimeters, and then we carefully record everything, map it on this side, describe it on the other. All the objects are put in a bag and labeled that they were found within that five centimeters. Top five centimeters, two artifacts. Ho-hum, right? We're not finding much. Next level, more and more artifacts. Between seven centimeters, this being the surface, seven centimeters and 20 centimeters, hundreds of artifacts. Hundreds. Striking. So we're to the point of, well, we answered the simple question. Yes, it's an archaeological site. Now we're digging another one square meter because we want, we have a new question. What are so many artifacts doing in such a small place? We don't have that answer. We need to dig some more because all of this arbitrary levels, the five centimeter levels, shows us the depth and position of the artifacts. When we get way down to here, which are glacially deposited soils, and then we can clean off this wall, we call it, and get a really good idea of the natural deposition of soils. And then we can incorporate the data we have recorded in our five centimeter levels to show where are the artifacts in that natural deposition. So let me show you 
some of the things that we found. Okay, so this is level two. So at five to ten centimeters. Dave, are you in level three? Yep. Yeah. So he's in the five centimeter level just below these. In here are little stone flakes and pieces of pottery. Let me show you just one object. And there's a number of you here, so I'll, I'll go back and forth. This is a piece of pottery. And here's the exterior surface. There's the interior. All right? Can you see this? There's the outside. There's the inside. Exterior. Interior. Hey, Carly, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah. So, um, another thing we can tell is, that was a big pot. Can you see the slight curvature on this? That pot was probably this big around. That's huge. Now, then think about making a pot this big with walls this thin. That would be difficult. That would be nearly impossible unless you had a method. There's a guy named Grant Goltz. He's making pottery up at the center. He was the individual who figured out for us how did these strange impressions get on the exterior of the pot. He's not only an archaeologist, he's an artist. So he looks at it from a different perspective. He looks very carefully at this and he thinks that looks like it's impressed with a really loosely woven fabric. So he comes up with an idea, a hypothesis, and he recreates made from plant fiber a flexible mold and you have to excuse my outdated analogy visually to me it looks like a macrame purse hmm. old people remember that right and um, woven out of plant fiber specifically wood metal so you make your pot you're starting to get it and it's very thin how you get it from not flopping all over the place is you stick it into this flexible mold and you scrape it from the inside, leaving that impression. Now, in this flexible mold are strings. So if we want a constricted neck, like the pot that Dave is using to cook wild rice, you just pull on those strings, bringing that in, and then out like that. So that gives us this type of pot. As Leroy pointed out, a pot that large, big around, was probably used for parching wild rice where you could take the wild rice, harvested and dried, uh, but still in the hull, or rackies, put it into the large pot, tip it back and forth over, sort of stir fry it, parch it, to dry it out, and then the next method was to, to thresh it, you know, by treading on it real lightly with special moccasins. Now, that's some pretty good information. We haven't found this yet, but I, I hope we will. On the next lake south of here, Shakopee Lake, Dave and I, back in, I think it was 2000. I think it was. Yeah. We, uh... That wasn't that long ago, was it? No, no. Just the other day. <laughs> a couple years ago. So we find 500 pieces of pottery, and they're all from the same pot. Cool. And some of them had a black residue on it. Burned food. Eureka! That's a science breakthrough. So we scraped some of that carbon off, sent it to a lab in Florida. 
They did a radiocarbon test on it and told us that pot was used to cook whatever that material was around the year 1450. We scraped some more off, sent it to a lab at the University of Minnesota, and they did a test borrowed from the biological sciences called opophytolith test, based on, this is an oversimplification, but it's based on the concept that when plants grow, they absorb water. Now, dissolved in that water is silica, which is quartz, right? You know, that's how fossils form, that's how agates form. Water comes up into the plant, water goes out through transpiration, silica stays in the plant, particularly in the stem. Now, spread all throughout the ground, that doesn't mean anything, but frozen in time, 1450, we know what was cooked in that pot. It was wild rice, three different kinds of sedges that grow out here, and corn. So those are some of the things we can learn by further analyzing this. And that's why not only do we put where, when, but who. We put our initials on this. Because five, ten years from now, somebody else younger and smarter than us might be studying this stuff and say, hey, wait a minute, that's a little confusing. DM, huh, I'm going to call David Mather and ask him, you know, on that level, what, and he might remember, you know who will remember? Leroy. <laughs> <laughs> questions. I know I passed over a lot of stuff, but ask, ask any questions. Um, this pottery was found in the level right above where they, and, and I'll tell you exactly where. Right here. Okay. Right here, but at about this level. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, yeah, good, very good question. When we, they, the ground was burned, right? We walked across here, and because the park had done a prescribed burn to introduce that element back to the forest, so there were no leaves. And at the base of this tree, we found some artifacts. Pieces of pottery, a stone spear point, and some stone flakes. And that told us that there might have been something here. Now, that stuff that was under the ground, and the reason it was on the surface is the, the tree growth pushed it up. So we came back to this. This is a general location, mainly because if we, if we would have excavated right by the tree, it would just been a mess with all the tree roots. So we picked a level area out here, and that's what, that's what brought us to this particular spot. So the other, the other part of why is uh, that the park wants to know, is this an area that should be protected for research, or is it okay to go ahead and develop it like a trail? When we got done with our 10-year-long ex excavation in another location associated with this event, mm -hmm. The park manager said, got any other locations you're interested in? And I said, you know, remember in 2000, oh yeah, we came down here. Yeah, you better check that out. So that's why we're here specifically. It's not because, oh gosh, I think we can find a lot of stuff here. It's let's check out this for two reasons. These are called research questions for, for two main reasons. Is this part of the larger archeological site? Should it be protected? Now. In order to dig any kind of a hole in a Minnesota State Park, mm -hmm. you have to have a license and a research permit. Mm -hmm. 
license from the state archaeologist, a research permit from the state park system, and they want to know, are those valuable enough questions to actually destroy the evidence as you encounter it? So they determine that, yeah, that's a, that's a good enough question, because ultimately it will result in better understanding and protection of the resource. This is a rim piece. Tell them what you think of this, Leroy. Uh, probably a cathio rim, probably, you know, 1,000, 1,580. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. See, see how, see how yeah. tighter that yeah. is than this? And we say that's more diagnostic, and that's why I use right. that car analogy. You know, I had a buddy in high school back in the 60s who on Interstate 35 at night, a distance farther away than the tree on the shoreline, mm -hmm. tell you make model year of a car from the taillight. Mm -hmm. That's diagnostic, okay. like this. So you found so. stuff like that in places where you could get an Exactly, date. yeah. So yeah, okay. stuff like that that had that had good hard dates associated with it. So it is a relative thing. It's a recognition of a style. That's called seriation. That's where, that's where having seen enough of it, just like you can say, oh yeah, that's a 57 Chevy. It's different than a 58. You say, yeah, that's, that's Cathio. It's different than Onamia or Ogichi. After seeing how local folks prepared and cooked wild rice, I made my way along a path to the lake where Amy Lala of the Minnesota Historical Society, who was contracted out to work with the Minnesota DNR, was showing a group of children how the Ojibwe, Dakota, and other cultures cooked using heated rocks to boil water. The kids were having a blast, collecting rocks and putting them in the fire to heat up. Occasionally, a rock would burst apart from the heat. We're starting with a pot. It's a black duck uh, design, and that's made by Grant Goltz, who's creating pots up at the Interpretive Center. And, I mean, he makes all the interpretive pots that you mostly see in Minnesota are made by him, and he makes them accurate to the archaeological record. And so we're using one of his recreated pots, and we started to do, as you see Dave's taking some out, a wild rice in it. So we start a little fire underneath it with three rocks around it to hold it up. And a lot of pots aren't flat on the bottom, so we can't just set it in the fire or set it on a flat surface because it's so rounded. So we have to have rocks holding it up. And then we've been putting, since this is the first time this one has been used, bacon inside of it first because mm. the grease seals up any of the cracks. Oh, there might sure. be faults that the hot water comes in. Sure. It breaks it apart. So then we also get the bacon out of that. <laughs> and it flavors the water a little bit more. <laughs> and then we put in rice in there after it's been boiling. And then we can watch mostly user error how much water versus rice. Oh, so we're, sure. we're trying it out this year pretty well. Yeah. And then to next to it we have where we're heating up stones. And we've had a lot of kids who've been helping me pick out stones to put oh. them in. Like these girls here. Thank you for your help, guys. Oh, you help pick out stones? Oh, how cool. many stones did you guys put in, do you think? You put in a couple. You kept on going. Um, I put in five. Nice. Okay. No, you put four. She put three. He put one. No, I got two the last time I did it. What's two plus two? So after their stones were picked out, we put them in the fire. Once they get very, very hot, we will put them in this pan here to boil the water. So I believe it took nine stones in there to really get it boiling, and we're boiling corn in there. But a lot of times, and girls don't pay attention to it, it's still been breaking apart. There's still explosions, because a lot of times when rocks get in there at a certain type, 
will just explode on us. Mm. And that's what we call fire-cracked rock. Mm -hmm. And in the archaeological record, when you find fire-cracked rock, that could mean a campsite. Sure. Or it could mean it got hit by natural fire. Sure. Earlier, so if we find many rocks together in a hearth feature, we can call it a stable campsite. But if it's randomly throughout the area, mm. it could be natural, or it could have just been spread around where they were kicking out the fire. Yeah. So it all depends on, in context, where did you find other things around it. Sure. A lot of times, flint nappers, when you're cooking, you're sitting down and you're bored, what you'll do is you'll take out your tool and you'll sharpen it up. So a lot of times, we will find flakes, flint flakes around it, mm -hmm. so we can tell maybe someone was sitting down there and tending the fire and just working on their tools. As I left the beach in the cooking demo, I saw a couple of Amy's colleagues pick some boiled corn out of the pot. They seemed to be enjoying the fruits of their labor. In addition to wild rice and corn, the people living at what is now Malax Cathio State Park had an abundance of wild and cultivated foods from maple syrup to bison. Before leaving this fascinating event, I would learn more about one way that local folks hunted buffalo. I wandered across a small field to find Olivia Barrington and Jackson Rudy, who were showing people how to use an atlatl and a spear. This is the better set of darts right there, so if you want to use those, go for it. All right. So this is atlatl throwing? Yeah, they're, um, it's, it's a form of spear throwing and it uses a an atlatl board as they call it with a notch in the end and a place to hold your hands and basically just there's a notch in the end of the of the spear and they hook up like that and you just hold it in your hand and then it works kind of like a lever so you throw it and it um this kind of is a spring so it oh. it like springs itself forward um, so let's see if I can get a good one for you. Maybe able to get a good Don't one. Don't worry, it's not video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. So it's uh, it's fun. It it gets you kind of um, gets people to see how people used to hunt, and yeah. not and it's not just a bow and arrow, which a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah. Um, and this is like just as common and more widespread even. So I, I assume this was for fairly large animals. Yes. Then. Yeah. 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 So, Bison, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 This right. is a little modern. Yes. For what These it normally looks like. Um, the older ones have a kind of like a removable tip. Yeah. Almost. Um, so you can like once you throw it, you can just pull this out and put another like tip with an arrowhead on it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and these are not. As nice as this, they're yeah. a little more. They they typically are uh, carved bone or wood with a with a stone on the on the tip gotcha. or, a, or a tooth or something. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like the original ones are a little bit more compound. Yeah, the, definitely. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and this is yeah this is like a carved piece that someone put together for us. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Would you mind if I try it? Oh, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's super fun. Yeah. Put your two fingers through here. So I do I do uh, thumb and index. I hope that this week's podcast inspires you to visit Archaeology Days at Malax Cafeo State Park next September. 
It's well worth taking an autumn drive and witnessing for yourself the changing colors of birch, maple, oak, and other trees as their green leaves give way to brilliant yellows and reds. Apologies for waxing unpoetically there, but it is really a beautiful part of the country, especially in late September. I remember that a park near you is having interpretive events year-round. We hope to see you there. Until then, please come back to next week's Public Lands Podcast. If all goes well, the plan is to move south just a little bit to Haiti, where we'll hear about sacred drumming, deforestation, and the roles that local musicians play in stewardship. Meanwhile, enjoy a park, lake, or stream near you. Get rid of this bump. That's a tricky one. Small flake. Uh, the archaeologist that I talked to said, oh yeah, there's a, there's a rock formation in Canada that's making those by the millions of tons. It's, uh, hmm. uh, Try again here. It's weathered out of the rock. Yeah. The hole used to be filled with some kind of mineral. It's a gas bubble. Oh, gas bubble. Okay. <laughs> so it's volcanic. It's volcanic. It's a... Uh, um, but you can see this would actually be a tradable item back then because... <laughs>